The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And if you would like to follow along with that, it's printed in, on pages 8 and 9 in your bulletin. Please first join me for a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth as we wait with expectation for the word made flesh Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish and guide us in the ways everlasting. Amen. Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him, when he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as, as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Over the past uh, several years, most of you probably know, there has been an explosion uh, in a new audio genre uh, called podcasts. Uh, this is the, the new uh, way to listen to interviews, sermons, talk shows, and, and the like. Uh, you download them directly to your phone, and they're available immediately whenever you want to listen. And it's so easy and, and popular to create these podcasts 
that it's just become impossible uh, to keep up with them all. However, I recently noticed uh, a feature on the, on the app that I use for podcasts uh, that allows you to change the speed at which you're listening to them, the, the play speed. So you can now listen at, at one, one and a half times as fast as normal, or two times as fast, or, or even three times as fast on, on my app. And I, I want you to know, I went to Geneva's website to see how we offer our sermon recordings, and you can listen at double speed there as well, you know, if you, uh, yes, right. <laughs> I just want you to know that was available. And, and I'm, a, I'm a sucker for these kinds of things. So I, I tried it for a while, but, but speeding along just kind of ruined my enjoyment of, of whatever it was I was listening to. But, but this is getting more and more popular. And in a recent article in the New York Times uh, about the spread of this uh, from not just audio but to video, uh, the article was entitled, uh, What If Netflix But Twice As Fast? Uh, a 20-year-old student in London uh, said she speeds up almost every video she watches. Some videos are dragged out so much and they speak so slow, she said. My brain likes the information quicker. This is a, a great picture, uh, I think, of, of the cul culture within which uh, we live. Uh, the culture that wants everything quicker and faster. And it's amazing that we have access to so much information, but it's also exhausting, isn't it? In this season here at Geneva, we've been trying to slow ourselves down by extending our Advent season, paying more attention to how we approach this time of the year. And especially from today, which is traditionally the first Sunday of Advent, until Christmas, it's easy to feel that things are going faster and faster. What the Advent season is about is waiting. That's what the word Advent means. It means waiting. And so this is the season of the church year when we remember that unlike our podcasts and, and our videos, life cannot be sped up. What God is doing in our lives cannot be sped up. And this is especially true of the hard parts of life, the, the waiting that happens uh, in our grief, in our confusion, in our doubt, in, in our pain. These past several weeks, we've been learning from the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. We've seen that in these difficult seasons, God is doing work inside of us that cannot happen in any other way. But it's often slow, much slower than we would like. So today we've come to another episode in Abraham and Sarah's life, and, and this chapter, chapter 18, uh, is designed to draw our attention to how slow God has been in fulfilling his promises and how often we want to move quicker. You'll remember that the story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12 with God promising to make Abraham into a great nation uh, despite the fact that his wife Sarah was barren. Uh, ten years later, we saw how they tried to rush God's promises by having a child through Sarah's uh, maidservant, Hagar. And then 13 more years pass, 
uh, before the Lord appears to Abraham in, in chapter 17 and reaffirms his covenant promise that Sarah will bear a son. And now, sometime later, the Lord appears to Abraham again through these three mysterious visitors. And you've probably noticed how the biblical narrative can jump years and, and decades at a time as the story progresses. But here, in chapters 18 and 19, things slow way down. These two chapters together cover only a 24-hour period. It's like we're moving into slow motion as we approach the birth of Isaac. And in the first half of, of chapter 18, God's slowness contrasts with Abraham's frantic hurrying as he shows hospitality to his guests. Look at verses 6 and 7. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour. Knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Abraham is fast, but God is slow. So slow that it, it now seems utterly impossible for Abraham and Sarah to receive the child who has been promised. We heard Abraham laugh at God's promise last week in chapter 17, and this week it's Sarah's turn. Not only is she barren, and Abraham an old man, but now Sarah is beyond the age of childbearing completely. For her to bear a child at this point is not just unlikely, the author is saying, it is absurd. The, the book of Genesis goes to great lengths to make this point because there's something in us that resists this truth. We often find it easier to keep ourselves busy than to face hard facts. As the 18th century philosopher and mathematician uh, Blaise Pascal once said, being unable to cure death and wretchedness, people have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. The Bible invites us to think about such things and, and not to see faith as opposed to this hard thinking. But usually, we are more like Abraham, rushing about, or like Sarah, hiding inside the tent, avoiding the challenge that God has put before us, and even avoiding God himself, though we may serve him ever so faithfully and sacrificially. The first step of real faith is always the recognition of our limitations, our weakness, and, and even our failure. This is one of the distinctive contributions that Christians have made to the 12-step programs that have helped millions of addicts confront their addiction. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is admitting that you are powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. The believers and, and the unbelievers I have known who have who've been helped by AA and NA find this the, the crucial first step, to admit that they don't have what it takes to co conquer their addiction on their own, that they are powerless in the face of it and in need of help from the outside. Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. It's when we are most hopeless and helpless that God comes to us. Sometimes, 
This means recognizing that something is badly wrong in our lives, facing an addiction or a moral failure. Other times, it means recognizing that we're so busy with everyday life in a way that might even make us quote-unquote successful, but we've become unable to stop, to leave space for God to come to us in silence and stillness. In our text today, there is much that is mysterious about these three visitors coming to Abraham's tent. It's not clear when Abraham recognizes that these are no ordinary visitors. It's not clear if the the three together represent the Lord or only one of them. The text switches back and forth between the plural and the singular. What is clear is that God comes to Abraham and to Sarah in the midst of their everyday wandering life. And they do not have high expectations for God at this point in their journey. But God shows up at the door anyway. This is a picture of grace. Like the three visitors, grace arrives when you need it, not when you are ready for it. Not when you are prepared or looking for it. If God's grace had to wait until you were ready for it, then it would never come. In that case, grace would no longer be grace. In the words of Tim Keller, a salvation earned by good works and moral effort would favor the more able, competent, accomplished, and privileged. But salvation by sheer grace favors the failed, the outsiders, the weak, because it goes only to those who know salvation must be by sheer grace. In token of this, Jesus comes not as a wealthy and powerful person, but as a poor man, the child of an unwed mother. In Genesis 18, verse 9, it becomes clear that these are no ordinary visitors who have come to Abraham's tent. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. And then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And now it is Sarah's turn to laugh as Abraham laughed. After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? And if you've been following along through this Abraham series, you know that there is a theme of laughter that runs through the story. Abraham laughs, Sarah laughs, and their son Isaac's name means he laughs. The story plays on the different kinds of laughter involved. There is the laughter at the impossibility of something happening, the the bitter laughter at a cruel joke. This is what Sarah's laughter is like in verse 12. But then there is the laughter that one experiences after an improbable good fortune, a joyful laughter. And we will hear Sarah laugh like this when Isaac is finally born. But do you see how the Bible recognizes the reality of both these kinds of laughter in our lives? Oftentimes, we want one without the other. On the one hand, we can deny the darkness of life in a broken and fallen world. And then we are left with only the superficial happiness that we get when Starbucks commands us to feel the merry 
in this most wonderful time of the year. On the other hand, we can lose sight of hope and fall into cynical despair. Biblical faith calls us to hold both a clear-eyed view of ourselves in this world with all its problems and confess that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcoming. Part of the graciousness of God's coming to us is that we can begin to see our need for what it really is. We can admit our powerlessness, our addiction, our blindness, and our sin. In the light of God's grace, you're able to name these realities for what they are without falling into despair because you have a hope that comes from the outside. Our song of response after our sermon today is a a song entitled In the Bleak Midwinter, which is based on a poem by the 19th century English poet uh, Christina Rossetti. And Christina was the youngest child in an extraordinarily gifted family. Uh, Her father was a poet and a Dante scholar, uh, but when she was still young, he became physically and and mentally ill. And when she was 13, uh, his health collapsed and he was left uh, almost blind and, and unable to teach and to support his family. And this radically changed her family circumstances. Her mother went to work as a governess and Her siblings also had to go and and get jobs. And Christina's job uh, was to stay home and care for her father. And as she grew older, this weighed on her, and she suffered from depression and and ill health throughout her life. She was engaged three times, but each time the relationship did not result in the marriage that she hoped for. Later, she suffered from Graves' disease, disease, which is an, an autoimmune disease that attacks the thyroid, and she had breast cancer. And so perhaps we can understand why she would write a poem like In the Bleak Midwinter. It begins, uh, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. And yet, in the same poem, This bleak picture is pierced by her hope in God's coming. Our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place suffice the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. In another Christmas poem, she writes, Love came down at Christmas, love incarnate, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Stars and angels gave the sign. Christina Rossetti shows us what a faith looks like that looks beyond its circumstances. She had a hard life, but she was not defined by her family's struggles or by her failed romances or by her illnesses. She knew that the God who revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus loved her. And she chose to trust in his love and to believe that even though he had not removed her from her hardships, he could sustain her in them. More often, our response is like Abraham and Sarah's in Genesis 18. We laugh in disbelief that the good news could really be this good. But even in this, the Lord will not leave us to our cynicism. 
He challenges Sarah and Abraham in verses 13 and 14, 15. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we hide from God because we are afraid. We deny and dodge, but the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. Thankfully, God does not leave us in our hiding. As we've seen in the story of Genesis, God does not abandon a world that has rebelled against him. Instead, he keeps moving towards it in gracious, unconditional love. He comes to Abraham and to Sarah again and again, repeating the promise in the face of their laughter over and over until they really hear it. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The implied answer to this question, of course, is no. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Nothing is too amazing or extraordinary. This answer will come to Sarah and Abraham in the birth of Isaac. And the answer to you and me in the gospel is that God knows the tragedy of the human condition. He knows our foolishness. He knows our self-centeredness, our failure. He knows our greed. But he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, in Jesus Christ, he reveals self-sacrificial, suffering love. In Christ's birth in the manger, he gives up divine glory to become weak and humble. On the cross, he suffers and dies to conquer sin and death. In his resurrection, he brings life from death. When you know that Jesus was willing to do this for you, that he loves you this much, then you can face your life differently as a result. In those places in your own life where you are still waiting, whatever the waiting looks like for you, whether it's waiting for healing or reconciliation with a family member or a friend, or you're waiting for the passing of a hard season, you can know that the one thing you do not have to wait for is God's grace and love. He has already given you this gift. I read a story recently that impressed upon me how true uh, this is in, in the details of our lives. The story is from a Presbyterian pastor named Steve Brown, and he once counseled a woman who 20 years prior had been unfaithful to her husband. For years, she had been haunted by this sin, and Steve Brown was the first person she'd ever told about it. And he says that after they had talked and prayed for a long time, he recommended that she tell her husband. He says this wouldn't always be his advice, but in this case, he knew her husband and he believed that however hard the conversation might be, that it would strengthen their marriage. So it wasn't easy for her, but she promised that she would tell him. But she said, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you ask, but if my marriage falls apart as a result, I want you to know I'm going to blame you. He says, uh, that's when I commence to pray with a high degree of seriousness. I pray best when I'm scared. Uh, Father, I prayed, if I gave her dumb advice, forgive me and clean up my mess. 
But here's what he writes about what happened next. I saw her the next day, and she looked 15 years younger. What happened, I asked. When I told him, she exclaimed, he replied that he had known about the incident for 20 years and was just waiting for me to tell him so he could tell me how much he loved me. And then she started to laugh. He forgave me 20 years ago, and I've been needlessly carrying all this guilt for all these years. Steve Brown says, Perhaps you are like this woman who had been forgiven and didn't know it. Friends, the gospel really is this good. In Jesus Christ, your, your past, your present, your future sins have already been forgiven. And he invites you to his table of grace and peace. For this feast, you do not have to hurry to prepare anything. He has set the table. He is the host. And he invites you to come just as you are, to be his guest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, would you open our eyes uh, today to see that uh, you are present, uh, that we uh, do not have to do anything to prepare for your coming because you have already prepared for us. You have come to us in your mercy, in your love, and in your grace, and you have invited us simply to believe and to trust uh, that the table is set, uh, that it is finished, that our sins are forgiven and that we are invited to know you and to walk in your love. We pray that we would know that grace in our own lives, that whatever burdens we are bearing today, that we would be able to set them down at your feet, and that you would fill us with a grace and a love for our brothers and sisters and for our family and for all those whom we might encounter, that we might share your love with them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.